1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Economics. I'm Tim Jones, and my guest today is Massimo Rastagno, lead author of Monetary Policy in Times of Crisis A Tale of Two Decades of the European Central Bank, published in June by Oxford University Press. This book was first published by the ECB itself in 2019 as an extended working paper to mark the 20th anniversary of the euro and its central bank. This update by its seven authors and publication as a book by OUP coincides with the completion of the ECB Strategic Review, a wholesale reassessment of policymaking since 1999, and especially during the past crisis decade. As a single-volume history of policymaking since the creation of the Euro, this book is invaluable for students, scholars, and ECB watchers. And it's only fitting that Massimo Rustanyu is here today to discuss this history since he was there at the ECB's birth, joining its Monetary Policy Directorate in 1998 and working his way up to become Director General Monetary Policy from 2017, a job he still does today. Massimo, welcome to the podcast.
2: Well, thank you, uh, Tim, for having me today and uh, for your interest in the
1: the book. Great. Well, the book was a group effort involving a team of ECB economists. Can you tell me more about who commissioned the research why you were chosen to lead it, how you chose the team, and how OUP came into the picture later?
2: Well, actually, you know, team, uh, nobody really uh, commissioned this work. Uh, it was largely um, a bottom-up initiative uh, among that group of staffers that you see in the authorship on the fr- mm. first page of the book. Who volunteered? We volunteered, not to produce a draft. You know, looking back on the first 20 years of ECB history and uh, draw some bottom-line lessons. You no, know? and uh, um, we had contemplating uh, this project for a while. So when the 2019 annual ECB conference in Sintra, Portugal, which is a big event, you know, every yeah. every year was explicitly uh, dedicated to the 20th anniversary of DCB where we thought maybe we write out the paper with the intention not to post it as a background material for the uh, Sintra event in uh, in June of that year. Mm. But unfortunately, as it happened, uh, we we didn't make it on time for the conference, so we sort of got carried away by the story we were telling (laughs) So the paper grew in, in length and uh, ambition also um, while we were drafting, uh, and so we didn't, we didn't do that. Having said that though, the two prominent ECB executive board members of the time who spoke at the conference of so former President Draghi and Chief Economist uh, Peter Pratt, were kind enough you know, to, to, to mention the paper in their exposition. Uh, so if you go back to Mario Draghi's inaugural speech, uh, for example, you you will see the paper quoted, although under a different type of, uh, the provisional title we had at the time. Then uh, after the event, we spent the summer writing up the last part of the book. Um, we sent it out for comments, and I think by the autumn uh, of 2012, uh, 19, sorry, uh, an earlier draft, still incomplete if you compare it with the, the book. Was, was published as the ECB working paper. So I must say at that point, uh, because you asked, Oxford University Press came uh, as, a, as a natural choice for us as a publisher, you know, as, a, as an outlet. Uh, they accepted the manuscript almost without uh, modification. I would say uh, it took certainly long to, to get it printed physically on paper because mm-hmm. of the pandemic, other things. But otherwise it was a very
1: smooth process. And and how much did the um the the core thinking of the book develop during the writing and how much was already there before you before you all got together and actually started the work?
2: No well, the the core narrative was already there, pretty much on our minds. So it was just a matter of developing you know, the narrative. And as I said that uh, took us longer, more effort than we had planned, and factor into the marching orders <laughs> when, we, mm. when we got started. But uh, otherwise, it was pretty much clear in uh, in our in our minds.
1: Right. Well, and and the core argument is, I mean, this is an exhaustive history of the ECB's policymaking over the past two decades. But it has a it has a core theme, which is this idea of two regimes. Could you first set out your central argument and then we can explore the book in in some more detail?
2: Well, I'll try. So in fact, the story is not complicated. It's it's quite simple. In a a nutshell, uh, you can divide, that's the thesis of the book, you can divide ECB's past life roughly into halves, not two decades, that look quite different from the point of view of the mix of shops that were driving inflation and the economy. Uh, more generally, general. No? By the right. way, that is what we define as an inflation regime. So it's the mix, the, the makeup of shocks, mm-hmm. economic shocks that predominantly explain some uh, economic forces that it, uh, predominantly explain inflation uh, and the business cycle from time to time. So in the first decade, and it's, it's a little bit more than a decade, in fact, the first Twelve years, uh, since the, the foundation of the ECB ninety eight until roughly two thousand eleven. So, in over those twelve years, the dominant shocks were inflationary. No, so they, the the early two thousands, you may remember, were were years in which the Euro area, as many as many other advanced economy uh, economies for that matter, were importing inflationary pressures from outside. No, mm-hmm. for oil prices were. On the rise, food prices were pushed higher globally. Commodities in general were becoming more and more expensive over those years, and uh, all these meant cost pressures for an economy like the euro area's that imports raw materials from outside and transforms raw materials into manufactured good products. No. So in those years, input costs were going up in the euro area and that translated into domestic price gains or price pressures for goods and services. That's the regime we we were in in the first decade. Now, let's see how the ECB comes into that that picture. So the ECB had had been established already in the 90s by by a covenant, by a treaty, European treaty covenant, as a central bank that had a a very primary uh, mission Price stability, you know, price stability first and foremost, uh, as the primary objective of the uh, Central Bank of Europe of the ECB. But um, I must say the treaty was exceptionally parsimonious and exceptionally unspecific, you know, about this uh, this assignment for the ECB. So in the whole treaty script, you you find just one line. So the ECB shall deliver price stability. That's it. So the the uh, governing council, which is the governing well the, the decision making body uh, of the ECB itself, at at the very beginning in uh, October '98, had to take the initiative to spell out what price stability meant concretely. And you see why, because a central bank a central bank needs to be uh, numerical, no, about its mm-hmm. uh, objective, because it has to know what inflation rate precisely. It wants to aim for, it wants to shoot for uh, in setting uh, policy, in setting monetary policy from one monetary policy meeting to the next. So in that spirit, in '98, the ECB uh, defined its own objective numerically. And in, de- in doing so, it did um, a pretty characteristic job. So uh, it did it in a, in a way that no other central bank had thought about before. Okay, so they, they basically identified all whole range of inflation rates that would universally, almost universally, qualify as an area of price stability. They said mm-hmm. any positive inflation rate below 2%, so positive, so not negative, so deflation was not consistent with price stability, but any positive inflation rate below 2% characterizes. A situation of price stability and therefore all positive inflation rates below the percent are equally equally consistent with our mandate, our mission as the treaty wants us to pursue so that was the uh, declaration of 1998 but you see one thing in this approach we double, which is quite uh, peculiar the only figure the single number that comes across sharply and I'd say uh, emphatically in this 98 pronouncement, 2%, now that number, is not an inflation target. No, it's not a central target. It is an inflation ceiling, mm-hmm. okay? It, it is there to mark uh, an upper limit to uh, what are to be considered admissible inflation rates and mesh, uh, inflation realizations under the mandate. So inflation rates below 2%, the if they are non negative, are okay. Uh, inflation rates uh, above two percent are not okay. No, they bring you outside the price stability zone. Now here comes the first leg of our story. Okay, so that this peculiar construction with a sharp ceiling and no, you know, discernible floor, this this construction for the definition of the objective was quite effective in providing a sort of self-equilibrating mechanism. Throughout those years that were relatively high inflation years, as I said before, you know, that we characterize, we, we, we refer to as, as the first regime, the first 10 to 12 years of ECB history. Why is that? Mm-hmm. Well, because anytime those inflationary shocks that ECB was, uh, sorry, the euro area was importing from outside, anytime those shocks would tend to push headline inflation above the ceiling. Above the two percent threshold, well everybody would expect ECB oh, to react vigorously, know, very forcefully, in trying to push inflation back where it belongs, below the two percent limit. And in the book we explain a bit this mechanism more precisely, you know, the way it worked, through uh, automatic adjustments in financial prices, the exchange rate and the rate and and all the rest of it. But but the but the bottom line is that despite those frequent flare-ups in prices, inflation expectations, very important, inflation expectations did not catch up. So they they remained very steady, very unreactive to uh, higher observed inflation. And you know, when inflation, actual inflation, doesn't infiltrate consumers and businesses and markets' expectations for future inflation, there might be one-time price increases, even repeated episodes of price increases. But, but, but these price increases are unlikely uh, to translate into a year-over-year process, inflation process, which is, after all, what matters. Mm. So they tend to be transitory, to die out quickly. And this we, we, we show this is exactly what happened in those years. Inflation did rise occasionally, in fact, very frequently, uh, above the 2% the line between '99 and 2011, but uh, those overshoots were were not very large and they were shortly, they, they didn't last for long. Yeah. But you know, that, that was not the end of the story. Then the the world changed. Shocks basically flipped sign. The second decade started in uh, 2012, uh, 20, 20, 2011 already. Um, oil prices uh, started going into reverse. As you may remember, first falling slowly, then precipitously, other commodities followed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the world, the entire world, have turned from inflationary to deflationary, uh, from uh, not causing inflation to fall rather than, than, than rise. And the watershed was clearly you know, the, the, the great financial crisis. And for Europe, even more crucially, the European debt crisis that followed. Mm-hmm. With the, all the financial turmoil, collapse in demand, and uh, uh, you know the economic insecurity that that event brought with itself, that was the fourth line that we identify as splitting uh, the euro area history into phase of the two regimes. Mm-hmm. Now, in this new world, and by the way, very unprecedented, very unfamiliar uh, unfamil- world for, for the central bankers. Who had been spending their life wrestling you know, with the problem of high inflation uh, mm. for a long time, basically since the, the 60s, 1960s, in this new world, the two percent ceiling uh, stopped, ceased to to serve as a not that sort of shock absorber or circuit breaker for inflation that I mentioned before. You know, it's like it's like you, you, you build a Maginot line, you build a concrete fortification, very imposing, super safe, pointed in one direction on the expectation that the enemy is going to show up on that side of the battlefield. But at the end of the day, the enemy pops up from behind and, and there is no equally robust uh, imposing fortification to stop it on, on the other side. So, the 2% fortification line was, was very effective against inflation, but much less so against inflation or sustained disinflation. And when that happened, the traditional instruments of monetary policy were already close to exhaustion, and the inflation expectations for the first time did start to react to low inflation. And as I said, when they do so, they become an engine of amplification of instability. Now disinflation inflation today is reflected in expectations of more disinflation tomorrow, and the process starts feeding on itself. That's basically that's that's uh, that's our story. Mm-hmm. Perhaps one corollary, um, if you if if you allow me, in in the second regime, in order to stop this uh, self-fulfilling, self-feeding disinflation process from becoming entrenched, this at some point had to come to become very aggressive in terms of deploying unconventional instruments and policies, trying to stimulate the economy and avoid inflation, and, and that is the subject of, I guess, the last two chapters of
1: the book. Yeah, well, we we will certainly come to that. But I, first, I'd like to go back to the pre-crisis regime. And two of the most interesting parts of the book, uh, and arguably these two have the most relevance to the current current uh, policy outlook of the two interest rate increases in 2008 and 11 and you conclude that the first of these could be justified in retrospect but the second was more obviously a policy error and this could have been due to how a price stability regime uh, with a ceiling morphed over time into something closer to price level targeting so could you talk us through that argument and through your analysis of the Two rate rises in two thousand and eight and two thousand
2: and eleven. Okay, so l- l- let me let me concentrate on two thousand and eleven particularly because that is <laughs> the, yeah. the sticking the sticking point uh, in many in many many observers' mind. So our take of the two thousand and eleven decisions when they hiked rates uh, not once but twice in April and June. Uh, some and in June it was already uh, quite advanced. now that the, the, the turmoil in financial markets was already visible and, one would say, even advanced, Um, is is, that our take is twofold. So first, I mean, to be fair, uh, and to put things in the right perspective, um, the economy at the time was exceptionally difficult to, to make sense of, to decipher. Uh, there had been a very strong first quarter for growth in the euro area in 2011. So first quarter was quite strong. However, it was followed by a rapid succession of disappointments on the economy, which was not visible or was only partly uh, visible to uh, the governing council of ECB when they took the decision to raise rates in April. Okay, So that's our first conclusion, to be, to be fair. Second, and maybe more important conclusion, however, um, is the following. The, the governing council at that point, in, in April of 2011, was confronted with yet another, another surge in inflation due, due to a, a yet another peak you know, in, the, in the international price of energy. Mm. And uh, at that time, they had grown simply too uncomfortable about those repeated inflation overruns. At that point, they felt uh, they had come. Uh, they had come to the, basically to the conclusion that the ECB had a credibility gap uh, to fill. Mm. And as I said, you no, know, at least since the year 2000, there had been a series of inflationary readings above two percent, close to two percent, but above two percent, not below. Okay. Mm. Uh, so in the spring of 2011, they saw another blast, of price pressures big enough to push inflation year-on-year inflation towards 3%, not 2%, 3%. And now remember uh, the regime they were living under, no? this, uh, with a sharp threshold, sharp frontier, exceeding at 2%, beyond which you were outside price stability. One could even argue in violation, if you are above 2% for too long, you are in violation of the price stability mandate, of the in breach of the ECB statute or emission. And don't forget, one. by the way, one thing, that many observers and academics uh, in the pre-crisis year and sometimes even well into the crisis times had been insisting that ECB was not serious enough in implementing its mandate. No, they were even accusing the ECB of a policy inattentive to inflation. Mm-hmm. Now, we spent some time in the book debunking this proposition, uh, which we saw was unsubstantiated, but but as you say, the pressure was there uh, on the governing council to deliver. And they eventually uh, delivered The high, arguably not at the best
0: of time. Hmm. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory shopify pos has everything you need to sell in person go to shopify.com slash system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today that's shopify.com slash system
1: and now the has adopted a symmetrical two percent target um how confident can we be that uh, this kind of policy error would be less likely in the future? I mean, after all, we're only talking really about the difference between targeting effectively one point nine percent with the ceiling, or two percent with the ability to go either side. So, why should we be confident that things at uh, two thousand and eleven wouldn't happen again?
2: Well, I, I can tell you why I am confident. <laughs> I am confident. So, first, two things. First, as you say, 2% is now clearly and unambiguously uh, a symmetrical target. It is not a ceiling. It is a, a central target in the, in the new strategy set up. And it is inherent, as you say, in the notion of symmetry that there can be uh, deviations of both sides of no? the, the target. So, that's mm-hmm. the first reason to be, to be confident, at least I believe so. The second reason... Um, is that the strategy review exercise that has come to a conclusion recently here at ECB has put, and you you probably have noticed, uh, has put a lot, a fair amount of emphasis on the notion of medium-term orientation. Yeah. Uh, in fact, revamping that notion uh, in ECB's monetary policy making it has been a traditional uh, mainstay of the strategy. So let me let me maybe, uh, if you allow me. Uh, quote from the overview note that ECB published uh, 10 days ago, not just literally verbatim, uh, mm-hmm. on the medium-term notion. The medium-term orientation provides flexibility to take account of employment in response to economic shocks that give rise to a temporary trade-off between short-term employment and inflation stabilization. And then it, it goes on. So what, what does this mean concretely? Well, it means that When inflation rises, because of the reasons that were um, back in uh, in 2011 very relevant, supply-side shocks, cost-push shocks, or like now, at present, because of frictions in the way the economy is going through the reopening phase after the uh, the pandemic shutdown, when when there are uh, inflation pressures... um, and that happens while the economy is still struggling you not know, to find its way in the aftermath of a very, very severe negative shock. So the economy is suffering like again in 2011, like again now. In those trade-off conditions, that those are called trade-off conditions, the ECB is willing and ready to look through, you know, look mm. through temporary inflation deviation, deviations. If that helps... Uh, employment, so el- that helps cushion uh, the blow on employment. Now, the ECB probably didn't pay too much attention to this Research
1: Underlying this book formed the basis of the strategy review uh, that was launched by Christine Lagarde when she took over the ECB's presidency. What struck me when I read the review statement that it was it struck me as effectively a formalisation of what the ECB has actually been doing for the last couple of years. Uh, Even though the new regime was only just or recently formally adopted, am I right in thinking that that this has essentially been how the ECB has been thinking for the last couple of years?
2: Well, uh, let me say yes, yes and no. Um, Let me explain exactly like you say. Two years ago, after the Simpra conference that I was referring before, Mm. the Governing Council for the first time officially, and I, I would say very militantly, not very emphatically, declared uh, the symmetry of their policy or the rule, their policy approach. Um, they said we will be symmetrical reacting to negative inflation deviation with the same conviction with which we will try to correct upside deviation. Okay, so they said that. So you're right. Uh, symmetry had made its way into the ECBs. Say de facto strategic frame of two years ago, two years before the strategy review exercise was finalised and validated and elevated, you not know, that practice that notion into the ECB uh, constitutional architecture. Mm. But you know, two years ago the question remained, the question very very important remained symmetry around what? What was the, that that centre? You no. Know? Uh, of oscillation for inflation that ECB was trying to aim for when setting policy that that was no uh, not not clarified that remained nebulous and undefined in the 2019 declaration and now the strategy exercise has settled that very sharply very definitely uh, it's a two percent symmetrical target unmistakably no room for interpretation so that's new. In, okay. addition, no, in addition, very importantly, that's very important. In the strategy exercise, the governing council has gone up one step further. It says now, when interest rates are structurally low, like at present, in order to be, deliver a symmetrical 2% inflation rate over the, the long run, we need, we occasionally need to, to be asymmetric in how we respond to shocks. So, recessionary shocks that tend to push inflation down below, below the target require, they say, a more forceful or persistent response than shocks that generate upside deviations of inflation from target. And particularly when you are slowly emerging from a long period, you know, spend at the lower bound, with inflation nowhere near the target year after year, that gives policymakers in the governing council now reason to remain particularly patient, on withdrawing support. In other words, in those phases, uh, one requires an extra dose, let's put it this way, an extra dose of caution, of persistence in deciding uh, any policy change. So they, they, they redefine, they reset their policy reaction functions to be more attentive to the fact that in order to be symmetric, you have to embrace an asymmetric reaction function occasionally. That's yeah. absolutely and also very very new. Uh, but I think it's very necessary element of a robust strategy, one that is good, you know, for all seasons when you confront we are confronted with inflation and disinflation. So that's I think is very is very new.
1: Right. Well I've, I've taken you away a little bit from the book, so I'm gonna come back to chapter four, which opens with this very nice quote. Um quote, the global financial crisis was born in the United States but came of age in Europe. And elsewhere in the book you describe how the ECB was forced to stand in for missing institutions. Could you expand on these points?
2: Well, um, probably it's, uh, it's unquestionable that the spark you know, that led to this uh, big uh, global deflagration of the crisis uh, went off in the U.S. and in U.S. mortgage market, we all uh, we, we all know that, no, in the subprime segment of the, the mortgage markets in U.S. But then uh, it quickly it quickly moved to Europe in the summer of 2007 already, and it is also true to say that uh, the spark uh, found, say, dry tinder, <laughs> ready to catch fire, uh, mm. to put it this way, in Europe. And uh, and we go, I, I think in the book, uh, to some length, um, lining up the facts that describe how the, the that sort of migration uh, of the crisis epicenter from U.S. to Europe uh, happened uh, in a sequence, you know, sequentially. And you know, in the years prior to the crisis, there have been uh, structural forces driving Euro-area countries apart from each other with the... You know, you know that very well. We, with some countries, Germany, the Netherlands, others uh, powering ahead, growing fast, doing very well; others lagging behind, like Italy, for example, held back by long-standing structural deficiencies, and even other countries like like Spain, growing fast perhaps, but relying on a fragile and uh, I would say unsustainable growth model. So the financial crisis, when it came, revealed those cracks, and uh, and in fact made them uh, wider and, uh, and 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 deeper. Mm-hmm. And the lack of a mechanism to share macroeconomic risk among member states of, of the sort that you know keep, uh, keep, keeps together, uh, U.S. federation, for example, the lack of, of the lack of those arrangements left some governments coping, coping with uh, their problems on their own. And that, uh, I believe, in in the book, we believe, led to uh, a debt crisis. Now, as soon as markets uh, saw this coping alone uh, as a mission impossible for some countries, uh, they came around to the idea that the Euro area was uh, radically, radically fragile, was um, was there not to stay. Mm. Uh, in that context, the uh, ECB became the only, uh, for a while, became the only euro institution that could step in quickly and uh, with sufficient determination and, of course, ammunition.
1: Mm. Well, the, the, and that brings us really to, to the big year, 2012, and, and the book's account of the transition between the two regimes is, is really interesting. Yeah, and it, it was not just this change of personnel at the top, with Mario Draghi coming in, but also Peter Pratt and Benoit Carré coming into the executive board, and the uh, and Draghi speech, the "whatever it takes" speech in 2012, um, you you talked about the background, some of the preparation that go that went into that what seemed to be quite an off the cuff speech about bumblebees and so on. C- can you take us through the events of that spring and summer? And assess the importance to the policy regime that came with the change of personnel at the at the top.
2: Uh, yeah. So, um, as I was saying, um, markets, investors, and all the rest. At some point, and that happened probably uh, between 2011 and spring, summer to 2012 at some point, just lost faith in the euro as a a convincing, durable proposition, you know. So many of uh, of these uh, investors in early 2012 started to bet on the dissolution of the euro area. Now, in practice, they they were placing increasing bets on a a scenario in which some countries would be ejected from the monetary union soon and uh, would not be able to redeem their bonds Coming you in euro, but you know in some legacy currencies on you know, the new lira, the new peseta of this world, and they didn't want to take that risk obviously, so they were dumping Italian and Spanish bonds in the in the open market. So that mm-hmm. that was the situation. Well, at that point when it became clear that the run on debt of some countries. Was primarily motivated by by breakup expectations, no? The expectations that mm. the euro area would just no, deflagrate. Mm. At that point, uh, the ECB, but particularly the new ECB leadership, the new executive board that in the meantime had taken the reins of the ECB, and I'm talking here as you as you have in your your question, Mario Draghi, but also you mentioned the contribution of two other important players sitting in the board as well, Peter Pratt, chief economist, and Benoit Fioré, that group of new leaders came to one important conclusion at that time. DCB had a mandate of price stability, but it was just impossible for DCB to come remotely close to delivering on that mandate in a world in which tomorrow there might be no euro anymore. No, mm. in a world in which one could not even compute inflation, determine inflation anymore, never mm. mind control inflation by monetary policy instruments in in that world, because the euro would just disappear. Okay, so so in, a, in our recollection and interpretation of the facts and the way we recount that part of the story, that was the realization that uh, you know jolted monetary policy making at ECB on to a completely different track. And the new leader said, we as guardians of the euro simply can't let this go on. Go on. Now, um, as you also say in the book, we give a little bit of color and try to paint the drama and epic, yeah. you know, around the days. And in fact, it's uh, almost nine years ago, almost exactly nine years ago, the days in July that led up to the most famous three worlds uh, that Mario Draghi pronounced in London, you know, whatever it takes, uh, the famous the famous pledge, no, the famous vow mm-hmm. that uh, he made to save the euro. So we pause and do a little bit of chronicle of those memorable events. But the truth is is that uh, that sentence was no improvisation. Right? It was no gamble. No? Uh, mm-hmm. It has been portrayed by some as a, as a gamble, but it was not. So the, the ECB had a plan. When President Draghi, um, went on stage that day in London, he knew what he was saying uh, under his leadership in the weeks before, that, that is our story, in the weeks before, a number of people at ECB had been busy, very busy, exploring options to stop the disintegration that was in full swing in the markets. There were meetings, multiple iterations with our principals in the board, a lot of thinking design testing cross checking from multiple angles, multiple perspectives, but the ECB had a, a converged on a plan, and the plan was announced in early August, not a few days yeah. after the the speech the yeah. London speech and became what is known now as the OMD OM, outright monetary transaction program in, in in early in early september but it's true uh, i mean it's it's very true um, the London speech put out the fire almost instantly. And and by the time the new programme was announced, again in August and then in September more officially, it was all down downhill from there. Now, one yields mm. in, in the so-called periphery countries fell by, I don't know, if I remember correctly, 200 basis points, 2% yeah. in a matter of weeks.
1: Yeah, I, I remember how quick it was between the... Between whatever it takes and the OMTs agreement, but what I think um, was news to me was the was the scale of the committee work that went into whatever it takes. In, in which case. Why? Why? I mean, this may be a question for the communications team. Really, why did? Why was that speech made in note form? It was not. You know, it was not. Uh, it was not fully written out and 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 pushed out to the markets. It it came across as quite improvised. Is it because not everything was perfectly ready for uh, for that moment? Well,
2: there was a process now ongoing at the ECB. Mm-hmm. The process had not. Uh, come to to a conclusion, to an end, but there was a clear, a clear, clear uh, direction and the marching orders were quite, quite uh, transparent to everybody here uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, and Mr Draghi knew that very, very well.
1: Yeah. yeah.
2: Okay, well, um, it, the other thing that was
1: news to me was um, when you embarked on negative interest rate policy. Um, The implication in the book was that you were flying quite blind. I mean, not only were you the first major central bank to do this, but as the book says, you were the first to use it as a sustained instrument of easing uh, the stance and not just to address currency appreciation. So tied to forward guidance and asset purchases, it became highly effective, but you didn't know that at the time. So what was the thinking at the time when you first introduced negative interest rates.
2: Yeah, so they, uh, you are quite quite correct. So the negative rate policy was um, one of the non standard and some would say and did say super unconventional monetary policy instrument of the of those years, of these years. Mm-hmm. Where in fact the E C B had to become even more creative and experimental. If you will, in in trying to push out the boundary of uh, possibilities open to the to the monetary policy to a central bank to keep the economy afloat in a, in a deep crisis in a recession. Um, now the, the the very what is very true the very rare times when a negative rate had been enforced had been attempted before, essentially twice only uh, in, in Switzerland in the. 1970s and in Denmark mm. more more recently, it was more as a form of a fee, you know, extracted as more of a form of a fee, a penalty that the central bank would collect on funds flowing from abroad mm. to try, you know, to stem a currency appreciation. So that was the purpose, more than as part of a deliberate policy package to give uh, an extra impulse uh, to credit uh, creation domestically or to stimulate uh, to stimulate the domestic economy. So that, that was uh, the background or you know, the backdrop. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it was really a, a trial and error. And in the book, we go through the, that, say, discovery or learning process in, uh, in some detail what became clearer and clearer as we were operating the policy and observing how it was propagating uh, through the term structure of interest rates uh, through the financial system uh, was that negative policy rates in conjunction, uh, so used in conjunction in partnership with forward guidance, mm. you know, uh, where you, you make uh, forward indications about the most likely direction of your policy uh, over the, the the next few quarters, that partnership were, was a, a very powerful weapon in making borrowing costs less onerous, no more attractive for enterprises and and households. That was a discover a discovery that that we had no clue about before. And, and the reason was that the, the reason for this effectiveness is that uh, when a central bank cuts its policy rate to negative levels. And send that sends by itself a very strong signal that the zero lower bound can be broken. And at the time, as, as you as you know, mm. uh, academics, you know, mainstream economics, was um, uh, were thinking that the zero lower bound was absolutely uh, an absolute limit, downside limit to monetary policy, conventional monetary policy. So uh, in, in cutting below the zero, you send the, the, the signal that it, it can be done. You
0: know? mm-hmm.
2: If on top of that act of break, breaking through the, the zero line, the central bank declares on top, you know, like the ECB did mm-hmm. in its follow guidance, that it could cut its policy interest rate again in the future, thereby itself pushes down longer term interest rates. And it does so very powerfully. And that it was was the main discovery, very powerfully, particularly for interest rates that banks in the euro area take as benchmark as base rates when they price loans for uh, enterprises, for firms and families. When creating a yeah. loan, no banks start from these uh, those interest rates that, that are that are influenced heavily by negative rate and negative rates, and for guidance. Then they add up uh, a margin on top of those base rates, and then they arrive at the lending rate that they finally apply on the loan, that they charge their Mm -hmm. clients. So these two instruments, negative rates and for guidance, gave the ECB a very strong grip on the financial conditions that matter most for the economy.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating book to, uh, uh, I think, general readers, but especially to ECB watchers like me. So um, as usual, to finish up the interview, I've asked my guest to recommend two books. Uh, what have you chosen?
2: Uh, two books. Uh, well, I, I guess a fascinating book for, not only for its content, certainly, but uh, the way it's written, really, is is Capital by Thomas Piketty. Uh, one remarkable thing about that book is that it's written a bit in, uh, in the mold you know, of uh, Keynes's general theory, mm. uh, which is a book in economics, very dense in theory, econometric analysis, all that, but, but also a treatise, you know, in the old meaning of the word, uh, which history, sociology, political economy, political science, all that, Comes together, intermingles uh, to form a, a narrative, a unified narrative. So I, I would really recommend that one. Um, the other one, uh, maybe very Green's, uh, The Populist Temptation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a nice history, very short but very sharp, first, nice history of economic and populism but, and political populism in Western societies. I think it's worth reading, uh, very instructive for both common citizens, like uh, we are all, and uh, uh, those people in authority in government these days. So these are right. my, my suggestions.
1: Right, well, I've never read Icon Green, so thank you for that. Um, today I've been talking to um, Massimo Rastaño, author, lead author of Monetary Policy in Time of Crisis, a tale of two decades at the European Central Bank. Massimo, thanks very much for coming on.
2: Thank you. Thank you,